Hi, and welcome to episode 68 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. My name is Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Black Douglas. He's well known for his brightly coloured landscapes with their trademark seven-tiered sky, but he's also an accomplished portraitist. And as I'm recording this, his work is hanging in the Art Gallery of New South Wales as finalists in both the Archibald and Wynne Prizes. The winners will be announced this coming Friday on the 10th of May. His paintings always have something to say about social justice, often with irony and humour playing an important part, and with his Aboriginal identity central to his work. He's won various awards and has been finalist in many others and has work in various public collections, including the National Gallery of Australia. His grandmother, Clarine Mortham, was one of the stolen generation, taken at 13 years of age and sent to Cootamundra Girls' Home, something that has had repercussions down the generations. His father's ancestors are the Dungati people from northern New South Wales. His mother was from an Irish-Australian background. And although he was born Adam Hill, he took on the name Black Douglas in recent years to reflect those two sides of his ancestry. We had a great morning talking in his Redfern studio, which he shares with other artists. And we start this conversation where he takes me back to when his parents met. Well, you know, that was a, one of those classic black and white relationships, I guess. Um, Dad was a blue-collar, hard-working black fella all his life and met Mum at the pub in Parramatta mm. and um, she was a hairdresser. Yeah. He courted Mum and and then um, Dad was um, incredibly industrious and I think after his mother passed, he started working. Uh, he told me he was driving a truck on Batlow Orchard at 10. Wow. Different days well, compared to sure now. Well, sure was. Gee. Yeah. And did he tell you, did he, did he have a strong sense of his Aboriginal identity? No. Not at all. It was an exact uh, example of um, just uh, pretend you're not, mm. you know, and you'll be right. Mm. And that's what was drummed into a lot of people. The fact that um, you see uh, Nana Mortham oscillated between Burnt Bridge and Dubbo. Dubbo is where she met her man, Fred, Fred Hill, and he was a white fella. So interesting relationship once again in those times, you know. Mm. So that's, uh, you know, we're talking 40s and 50s, thereabouts, and you just pretended you weren't black. Yeah. You just became a worker and did your thing and slotted into society. Yeah. So how did you come around to get such a, a strong sense of your own Aboriginal identity, um, even though your dad probably didn't instil that in you when you were a kid, I take it? Yeah. Your dad always raised his eyebrows about why I would pursue and project what I do. But um, what I would learn later in life is what you carry in your genes. You know, every now and then there's a firecracker in the family and that's a culmination of what's happened in the past. Mm. And I, I carry a lot of female energy and so um, you can only but imagine what have happened to the black females in my family in the past and go back however far you want to go. Mm. But certainly in the course of the history of the colonisation of this continent, and how that affected my family, um, I carry that stuff through. Mm. And what about your, did you experience racism at school when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, but by and large indirectly, but when um, kids knew I was Aboriginal because of, Dad would drop me off at school mm. and you cop shit all day. Mm. There were, well, there's only one other family um, uh, sorry, there was, a, there was a strong black family in the school. They were hickeys from um, the Hunter region originally and they copped it badly. It was, uh, it was 1980s in Penrith and you just couldn't look any different than a bogan. Yeah. And, um, and it broke my heart to watch that happen. And, yeah. you know, you can't, there's no other way but to react but with violence and that's just historic. That's what's happened with a black man. That's why one in three are locked up. You get sick of being called a, a nigger or a black cunt or a bull. And uh, it's the best way. It feels good to punch someone in the face, you know. 
Yeah. And so you're going to get locked up or um, charged. And so that's just how we always dealt with things in school. Same with my dad. It's always the same. We, you know, we got boxing in our family, so everybody was handy with their fists and you just retaliated. It's like survival. Yeah, because you, 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 things aren't going to change. Yeah. Like I, uh, I would hope that they would in my lifetime. We, we're going leaps and bounds with progression in, um, in society today, but it always just seems to be like a, you know, it's just like this uh, inherent constipation of conservatism. Like you just want to get it out. <laughs> mm, mm. But it's just a slow drain. Did you study art at school? Oh, yeah. Uh, art and sport were the two. And geography. But yeah. uh, they were the three faves. Ah, oh, right. Everything else I got kicked out of class. Um, it just didn't interest me. So yeah. art was um, definitely, uh, for me, it was um, uh, a definite uh, uh, therapy. Yeah. Do you just, remember what your major work was? I always oh, yeah. like asking people what their yeah. major work was, yeah. Uh, interestingly, it was, um, it was 10 large charcoal drawings of Mike Tyson. Wow, right. Um, oh, okay. Because um, there was something, uh, we all know how exciting he was when he came into the boxing arena. Yeah. But um, what I look back on now was the fact that I worked from photographs out of boxing magazines yeah. And, um, and I made these large drawings that looked incredibly dynamic on, on the wall. And, um, but I'll look back now and try and tap into the, the unconscious metaphor mm. that was there. Mm. And that was this uh, kind of primeval, incredibly powerful black presence. And um, it was almost as though... Um, Mike Tyson was the childish Gambino of slavery. Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, it, it was as though slavery had been let out of the cage for just a little brief period in history. Mm. Um, but, of course, uh, you have Jack Johnson um, in the 20s, uh, many other black American heavyweights. Mm. But there was something about Mike Tyson and this, this unleashed ferocity yeah, that yeah. just seemed like um, uh, it made um, everybody love to watch it. Yeah, Whether it's you're interesting, white isn't it? Yeah, or that's black right. or it didn't matter. And everybody it's just like a wanted raw to see energy. this immense power of, an, of a human being. Mm. And, um, uh, and I think that was an unconscious thing that attracted me. It wasn't just the, uh, well, at the time it was the mystique and the, you know, just this prowess of this uh, amazing physical feat. Mm. But um, it was much more than that, deeper mm. with him. So you must have had that. You must have got some sort of positive reinforcement with that sort of work at school. Like, did, were you? Did you feel at that point that you wanted to be an artist? No, never did I imagine that I would be pursuing art because it was a blue collar working class suburb. You were encouraged to get a trade. Oh, okay. It was something you could fall back on. Yeah, right. So, you know, I dabbled in some shit-kicking um, notions mm -hmm. and then I couldn't, just couldn't uh, keep my mind focused on the mundane. Yeah, right. And so, you know, I just, for a good part of the, my time, I just spent walking around the national parks and riding my mountain bike and um, just hanging out and doing what, other black kids do because you maybe you <laughs> you're just elsewhere. Yeah. You know, why right. can't we keep black kids in school, and get an academic career? Well, geez, our genealogy is just a little bit too close in the course of the scheme of things. You know, we go from fifty thousand years to a, a little a blip in yeah, history. A blip and yeah, expect yeah. that everything turns around. So you're talking about that 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 lifestyle where you're connected to the land. Yeah, and you'd rather be elsewhere. And I, I, years later, I would appreciate that, how all the Aboriginal kids were always in trouble, always in the office or being sent home or something. I just can't keep them focused. <laughs> well, that's because um, there's bloody spirits outside the classroom window saying, you know, uh, 
you're meant to be in ceremony, mm. even though it's an illusion uh, to most, you know. Mm. But mm. there's some kind of um, energy that's calling all the time, which is distracting. And I don't see that changing for the most part. Um, thankfully, uh, we're able to channel it into sport nowadays, and that's, a, that's the only way. Uh, channel the kids into scholarships. Yeah. On... Do you think it's the same with art as well, that, that art can serve that purpose? Or? Uh, not, not so much because um, Aboriginal art has become a kind of a minefield, really. There's, uh, there's too many modern artists like myself advocating that we all shouldn't just be painting dots, whereas most remote Aboriginal communities, even in New South Wales, um, there's a desperation just to get a focus for an individual to do something. And so if you're pursuing that in art, then the easy go-to is to paint dots mm -hmm. because it uh, familiarises with uh, what constitutes Aboriginal art. Mm. So art is not a go-to for every Aboriginal individual, even though it's been practised since time memorial within your families, you know? Yeah. But it's it, it, there's now the, the chasm of becoming a, a successful artist is so broad because it's been manufactured by uh, the white establishment. Right. So in other words, you mean, so you feel like you have to fit into a certain category or a lot of Aboriginal people feel they have to fit yeah. in a certain category? To, for... Um, for your lay person, blackfella, who's looking at becoming an artist today, when you explain uh, what it entails in the scheme of uh, commodifying your art, mm. um, for the most part, the white establishment isn't interested in you because you're not marketable as marketable as a Western Desert painting. And so um, to put the effort into... Um, modelling your practice to create your niche and your uh, identity within the art world, it's just too far to, to envisage that it's, it's a potential success. Yeah. So, so how did you get, end up at University of Western Sydney, which is where you did a Bachelor of Arts in graphic design? How did you, how did you go from working um, to, to that point? I kicked around and I actually tried to enter the police force. Okay. And um, because to me, uh, that was the ultimate trade to fall back on. Yeah. You know, it's something alluring about being a cop. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's still the same for most communities. And um, it involves all of the attractive things that um, are alluring to um, an agitated mind. Mm. And um, what, like order? You mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. It's like it's it's basically an Australian version of the Foreign Legion, mm. in a sense. Mm. So uh, you you go and you you get yourself into order and you sort yourself out. Mm. And then, um, scarily, they stick a gun on your belt and now a taser. Mm. However, I was knocked back in the medical, so. I then saw other colleagues who had gone into the police force and I saw how it affected them. So I'm really glad I didn't end up there. What, in a negative way, obviously? Yeah, a negative way. Yeah. And, what, uh, psychological, what, psychological sort of uh, Racially and psychologically. That aside, um, after that, uh, thankfully my dad suggested, you know, he pleaded with me to do something mm. whilst uh, I was at that point spending a lot of time drawing. And what were you drawing? Do you remember? Oh, yeah, I've still got them. Yeah? Yeah, I was perfecting caricatures, you know, and that uh, entertained me no end. And mm. I, was, I was drawing constantly and began with ink and brush and then went to coloured pencil and then watercolour mm. and I completely aced it. And Dad said, why don't you try and do something with this, you know? Mm. And for the most part, um, I just had no idea what to do. I was stuck in Penrith, you know? Yeah. And um, then he said, look, uh, uh, advertised in the local paper, the university open day. 
And so I went up to the, uh, and looked around and honed in on graphic design with a strong focus on illustration and photography. And What was that like? Oh, it was incredible. It was a life changer, obviously, because um, not only did I meet great, great artists like Lawrence Tan, who was my art, my drawing teacher, mm. um, Tony Oliver, who was uh, um, one of the most renowned illustrators, book illustrators, and I had the greatest mentors in those th meager three years, you know, mm. and... Um, what did you learn? Did, what do you, I mean, obviously you learned a lot, but... Um... Well, I learned that art could be professional, you know, uh, um, you had to turn up to draw and you had to turn up to make a submission for a major work or for a end of year work. And that's exactly like meeting deadlines. And so it was a great uh, indicator that um, if you can prepare an artwork and get it ready for X date and then um, people will come and look at it. <laughs> yeah. And so... So it gave you structure in a way as well. It, it's yeah. the structure. It's all about the structure. And, um, but the most important thing about my involvement at university was the Dirali Aboriginal unit because that's where I met Auntie Jean South who would become my ultimate mentor. She was an artist herself outside of university but she was there to mentor us Aboriginal students who were there oh, right. who found the walls of an institution a bit scary. Mm. Um, and sh thank goodness that was 1994. Yeah. So thankfully then our universities were um, an egalitarian thinking place and that that was incredibly chalk and cheese for me compared to what was outside the university grounds. It was a, yeah. you know, footy playing thuggery kind of demographic but you go in there and you get treated like a respectable individual Yeah, and you can have a, a, um, a sensible conversation mm. and she's... Um, she was the one that suggested, well, you know, you're at a fork in the road with your um, identity and you need to think about which way you want to go. And um, that's what the question that's often been raised. What, why did you choose to go that way? Uh, it's because that all the spirits were standing at that side of the road saying, uh, let's go. We've got to mm. talk about some things. And so that started you on your road to find out more about your roots, I mm. take it. Mm. And how did you go about that? Um, well, first started asking Dad questions, but Dad was such a quiet bloke. He was that archetypal man of few words. But when he did say words, um, and he only trickled them out. And he would only trickle out information about the Aboriginal family um, pretty much on Christmas time oh, when yeah. might have had a few beers and emotions stirred because it was fucking nostalgic Christmas time. <laughs> and um, It's so hard to talk about some things with family. Yeah. It's really hard to get the right time yeah. and open it, to open up. That's it. Dad passed on four years ago now and um, even uh, until his final days, you know, that, that final year, he was still just, just eye-dropping out information, Yeah. you know? Do you think because it was painful for him or...? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, the, and this is the problem with uh, so many mobbing community. It's not a problem, it's just that when you've had bugger all your whole life and but what you do have is cultural knowledge or memories of your family and the old ways, then, um, you know, you keep that to yourself because um, who deserves to run off with that? It's like too sacred in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you found a way to connect. Have you... Um Actually, you said you made some connections with family up in Kempsey and then it flowed on from there that you've, you've sort of met people all over Australia. I think you've, you've 
gone to, you know, I mean, northeast Arnhem Land, for example, and you've met the Yongu people mm. and um, that must be a whole new world. Uh, that opened up a whole new world for you. I just did that on my own accord. You know, mob will thrust you out pretty quickly and um, I think I surprise a lot of remote region mob because I just don't look like a blackfella and but um, my black heart's like fail up and so I go into a community and and then there's a shock. It's like, wow. Um, yeah. It's kind of, Migaloo fellow is actually one of us. <laughs> and then uh, there's an embracing that happens and, you know, that's just how communities are. Yeah. They can suss you out pretty quickly. So after university, were you actually painting at that point? I wasn't painting at university. Right. And when I finished university, um, I kind of uh, uh, bummed around for a little while, just did odd jobs. One of the pivotal jobs that I did, which is um, coincidental that it's such a strong element in my work today, is that um, I took a job as a car spray painting apprentice. And so... Um, I had a very early affiliation with masking tape and taping up things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm telling you, not a, a painting goes by today that when I'm using uh, to produce my now um, what I call uh, vapour trails or chem trails in my skies. Yeah. Uh, that involves masking up with newspaper. And mm. almost every, even though I'm just doing it on a flat canvas, or it rem I distinctly remember masking up in the dead of winter in Penrith, <laughs> guards of cars and, and windshields. So I uh, did a few jobs like that. And then um, oddly, I'd also begun playing didge. And um, it was through my passion for learning the didge that I saw this um, advertisement in the local paper about this guy that was making didgeridoos in a shed in this industrial area in Kingswood. And um, he was looking for Aboriginal artists to, to paint, you know, and particularly paint didges. Oh, yeah. And I thought, wow, this is how bizarre, how banal. And so um, I went um, to meet this guy and there's this small little enterprise taking place with how he was making these didges and sanding them and oh, yeah. uh, met uh, a couple of Aboriginal artists there. Later on, he upscaled things and occupied a, um, a brand new factory unit just down the road from where I lived in South Penrith. And so that became a regular hangout. And at that time, I was working as an Aboriginal education assistant in a school in Western Sydney. So I'd be doing the school hours and mm. then had too much energy to burn. So I'd go straight down to the factory after school and hang out and then just began painting. And we were under the guise of uh, a Wiradjuri artist named Graham Lee Murray. And he, we decided on Wednesday nights, there was a whole bunch of Kuris that were coming to that place of various ages, mostly older, mm. who were finding their, themselves, you know, mm. stolen children who hadn't met their biological family yet. Mm. And um, we all began painting as a hobby on, and we'd hung out on Wednesday nights and yarn up and yeah, right. the fellow that ran the factory said, I've got um, 10 large MDF boards at the back of the factory there, not using them, why don't you paint something on them? And so I knocked up those 10 large boards in a matter of no time and kept going. He says, why don't you try painting on canvas? So he was, a, he was a very instrumental in, in uh, the early days. And then uh, we, he, he suggested that we ask the boss man that owned the units if we could use the massive one at the end, which wasn't occupied yet. Oh, yeah. And um, we put on an exhibition. It was called Growing Up on Darug Country. And the mayor came and opened it, and it was famous. Like, about 100 people turned up. We couldn't believe it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, most, so, most of everything 
sold, save for the, the large boards, but um, then one of the instrumental people that did come along and support was Val de Silvi, who was the director of the uh, Joan Sutherland Performing Arts Centre. She suggested that I come the year after and have the first art exhibition in the foyer of the Joan Sutherland Performing Arts Centre. Uh -huh. And so this was incredibly famous because I got, I had already lia begun liaising with NAJDA, the National Aboriginal Islander Skill Development Association. I got them to come out and perform. So there all of a sudden, for probably the first time in fucking who knows how long, there's a group of tribal Aboriginal people dancing in the foyer of Joan Sutherland Performing Arts Centre in mm. Penrith, in my hometown. Oh, and amazing. all of the people that I'd grown up with came along, and their jaws were just agape. Like, what? Where the hell have you been? <laughs> you know, we just remember you as one of us in this godforsaken place. <laughs> but you've gone out and. Yes, so know, that was a turning point for oh, you. Oh, a major turning point. And so I still boast that that was uh, both of those were the first large-scale solo Aboriginal art exhibitions in my hometown. Did you um, feel like you were ready for that? I mean, was it? Oh, did of course you, I was ready. Yeah. I was ready to to exhibit my stuff. Yeah. So you, I, at that I point, you've no been painting idea for a while. that um, the commercial art world existed, apart from the fact that we collectively used to sell artworks within the little foyer of the didgeridoo uh, operative yep. that the guy ran. Yep. And then he was uh, very savvy. He, he used to get tourist buses to pull up on the weekends and visit the foyer and we'd give him this spiel and tourists would buy local Aboriginal art. Mm. But I had no idea of the commercial existence of exhibiting until Bumali. So can you tell me about Bumali? Yeah. So um, after that, it was suggested that you become a member of them and... They're and, a cooperative, yeah, an artist cooperative. Yeah. Joining Bumali was like um, growing hydroponic yandi. Like it was just, it just <laughs> you just boomed over, everything boomed overnight. And... Ah. Um, so there must have been a great energy there, like with all the other artists. Yeah, of course. You? And so when I walked in those doors, uh, Jonathan Jones was the assistant manager. Mm. Um, uh, it was Lynn Syme, Tracy Duncan, they were the managerial staff. Um, Michael Riley was still sitting, still alive. He was mm. a bit sickly at the time, but he was still there. And so I just walked into this... It was a bit like Boulevard of Broken Dreams, that famous <laughs> image, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Auntie Elaine Russell, Leonie Dennis, you know, Gordon Hookie was exhibiting at the time there. Yeah, right. And what, did you find your practice changed at all when you joined Bamali? Certainly uh, the fine-tuning of my works. Um, all of a sudden uh, I was strictly a canvas painter. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know what, back in the early days I used to do this gammon thing where I go to the those uh, classic Western suburbs shops that sell frame prints of Marilyn Monroe and James Dean and Elvis. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'd I'd buy those framed things, and that very first exhibition, I'd I'd take the poster out and then I'd paint the masonite or I'd cover it in canvas and just glue like glue it to the board and glue it around the edges yeah. so it looked like a canvas. Oh, yeah. And I painted the frames and then put it all back together with a glass in it. Oh, uh, it yeah. looked a million dollars yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. But all of a sudden, Bomali, um, it was a done thing where you stretched your canvases. Right. So I, I took that big step up. I was, I was proper then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, and that must have led to just um, more group shows and solo shows yeah. after that. And then, yeah. well, they offered... So my first um, involvement was group shows with Bomali. Yep. Also, they'd organise satellite shows, so you'd be exhibiting somewhere else. Yeah. And, um, and they were the seeds that I needed to plant uh, initially. It yeah. was about that, and that's what they're thankfully still doing. But at some point, I was transient in where I was living, and so I actually had this little cave at the back of the Flood Street 
uh, premises oh, and yeah. I, was, I was living there. Oh, wow. It was me and the rats. <laughs> and um, I was just sleeping on a, a sofa bed. Yeah. And uh, it was great because I was waking up and making art. Yeah, God, that would be – so and you that, were living it. That gave me a taste of what it's actually like to be a proper artist. I mm. felt completely proper. I was, so uh, was your identity at that point yeah, by then? I was just um, living and breathing. Mm. Oh, it must have been amazing. Yeah. Great memories of that. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about your work a little bit more in detail because, you know, it's a very very appealing, very attractive style that you have, beautiful bright colours, those great skies with the stripe to, that you do with the masking tape. But, of course, there's a really, you know, there's always, always a an underlying social commentary in your work. Has that always been something important to you from, from the beginning? Always. The first painting was a comment on land degradation in uh, the Land Dilo area where I used to drive between Penrith and Riverston to do my work with the kids in the school. And well, I should point out, actually, when I say that there's, also, uh, there's always a social commentary, it's always on Aboriginal issues. Yes. And, you know, ranging from, you know, well, you've, you've, you've dealt with things like um, deaths in custody to, um, you know, even health issues. In to the uh, child sexual abuse by the Catholic Church, um, all of that, or the Anglican Church. Yeah, so time. you don't shy away from anything? No. Um, ever, look, to me, it was as though um, the rug has been lifted up. Uh, you lift up the rug at Nana's house and all of a sudden you find the ones in two cent pieces and there's a red back or run out or whatever. There's mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff under the rug. Mm -hmm. For too long, stuff's been swept under that in the course of colonisation. And so um, I am thankful that we, as opposed to other um, countries on the planet, uh, we can actually say that. And we all know that it's not going to really make a dent on the establishment on the conservatives, you know, except for the fact that you most likely won't get a retrospective within their institutions. You've got a great knack, though, with well, getting back to your paintings, of presenting a very seemingly cheerful sort of uh, presentation and through colour and design, but with that underlying message. Is that a deliberate approach? Of course, the paintings have always been designed to aesthetically draw you into a place of pleasure and, you know, the, the metaphors are the lucky country, our country, mm. the best country in the world and just um, beautiful one day, perfect the next. Yeah. And um, by and large, that's what has become resultant of uh, colonial insomnia. And it's just like existing in the most beautiful country in the world, uh, but being completely fucking blind to um, what happened just yesterday. Mm. Classic example is uh, when I was previously in the Wynn Prize mm. and the painting featured stylized termite mounds in a arid landscape but there were middle, middle fingers and the painting's title sixth finger salary yeah and so that was a message back to the mining companies yeah so and, it was like uh, the f yeah. putting the finger up to them yeah. yeah and um the lovely lady from the art yellow society rang me up and gave me the news and um that I it got in yeah yeah that i was in I'd been selected as a finalist in the win prize and um, I kind of laughed and, and said, you're kidding. <laughs> you think they didn't get it. And she said to me, you sound so surprised. The colours are so beautiful. <laughs> and I thought, yes. They did look very much like termite mounds. To me, I, I just won. I just, it, it had been, yeah, you, you know, broke it had through. been 15 years of struggling to get my stuff seen and... Yeah, and then it got into the art gallery in New yeah, South Wales. Yeah. Can we talk a bit now, move on to talking about the Archibald? Because I was talking to you earlier 
And it was really interesting that you said that the only time you ever paint portraits is for the Archibald. And those, and you've had two fantastic paintings in the in the Archibald. Congratulations! And um, you've got entered another one this year. We're recording this in 2019, in case somebody's um, listening in the future. I particularly loved your portrait, which was finalist last year, of Uncle Roy Kennedy. Is he uh, an important person in your life? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I'm his personal banker. What do you mean? Well, he bites me every week for money. <laughs> oh, by the way, he's an artist. He's yeah. a celebrated artist. Celebrated yeah. artist, Uncle yeah. Roy. Uncle Roy won the uh, what became the most prestigious art award in New South Wales, the Parliament of New South Wales Aboriginal Art Prize, yeah. which ran for a decade. Yeah. And he won that near its final days. And justifiably, you know, he's, as per Auntie Elaine Russell, um, his works are those gorgeous, naive etchings of of um, Warren Gesda mission on the Murrumbidgee in Cowra. Where he grew up. Yeah, yeah. Where, where he grew up. Yeah, yeah. Has he been like a mentor to you? A cultural mentor. Mm. Uh, there's no one more real than Uncle Roy. Mm. And I can, I can candidly say that. Mm. And um, in terms of uh, adaptability and survival for an Aboriginal person in the modern era. Mm. And so it was just uh, imperative that he became memorialised in the scale that I did and yeah. the way that I did. Yeah, well, you did the... Um, his, his face is in a monochrome treatment, so it's black and white, but in like a negative sort of black and white. And I think you were drawing on his sort of uh, printmaking? When you yeah, did... well, look, as typical with my works, there's layered metaphors and analogies and puns. So the fact that he does work in monochrome, um, that was the main pretense of my execution of the work. Mm. But also um, there's, uh, there's truckloads of negativity ingrained within him mm. as a result of the way his family was treated and the way he has been treated all his life. And, and how did he feel about the painting? Uh, well, if you watch the uh, YouTube video <laughs> when he first saw it, yeah, yeah, um, that's just classic Uncle Roy. Well, he was sort of, he was sort of, he didn't show too much of a reaction. No, memory. he just rolled his eyes. <laughs> I walked him into this studio space here, and it was hanging on the wall. And I said, as he hadn't seen it as we're walking through the doorway, and I just said, um, I've, um, I've approached it very differently. And he, he just gave one look at it and then looked at the camera and rolled his eyes and said, <laughs> different, all right? <laughs> and that's Uncle Roy. Yeah, right. Oh, obviously a very close relationship. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the Archibald experience like? or how, how has it been the last couple of times that you've been in? Oh, priceless. I just love it. I just love all of that dynamism and the energy that surrounds the anticipation. There's no greater energy to experience uh, within a confined space. And the fact that you're so excited to hear the announcement, um, for those who weren't informed who was winning, mm. but... Uh, so you well, know, so these days you know that the winner's been told before the announcement. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I, you, you feel, because it's such a proper place <laughs> yeah. that um, I just feel like I would want to strip naked and run around and do cartwheels or something, you know, like if you won that prize. Probably scare a few people, but, um, you know, nobody that I've seen so far, like I, I've seen people win that award and say, well, I don't really know what to say. I thought, well, fuck, give me the fucking microphone, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Because i got a lot to say. Yeah, yeah. And what's your entry like this year? So your entry this year is a... Auntie Esme Timbery. Yeah, another yeah. Another revered and favoured elder of mine and who turned 88 a month and a half ago. Yeah. My first major expose in Sydney was curated by Hetty Perkins and Jonathan Jones. The year 2000 for the Olympic Games and both Esme and I uh, staged a duo show oh, yeah. in the foyer of the studio at the Opera House. 
So she makes those gorgeous little shell models of the Opera House and Harbour Bridge and little slippers yeah. that adorn most institutions. Yeah. So approaching her and reminding her when I phoned her up, hey, aunt, remember we had that show? And of course she remembered like that. How I'd like to paint you for the Archibald this year. Well, I was speaking to her daughter and she just she nearly dropped the phone and said, oh, we love that. That would be beautiful because mum's turning 88 this year. Great. Yeah. Let's go. Need yeah. to be memorialised. And I'm pretty sure that she notches up the accolade of being the longest practising urban Aboriginal artist. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, well, that's really significant. Yeah. That's great that you've chosen yeah. her. Um, and so uh, I painted a humdinger of a piece. I'm surprised the thing's still on the canvas, on the, <laughs> on the stretcher. That, like Why? It, it must weigh, fuck, it must weigh kilos, you know. Because there's so um, many layers. Not, a, not only the layers of paint that I've used, but also um, the volume of shells. Because she gave me a bucket of shells uh, because I told her I wanted to use shells in it to make that ultimate um, homage to her. Oh, okay, because so, I saw it on Instagram, but I didn't realise mm, it was mixed media. Mm, but I, um, right. she gave me the shelves that were too big to use in her ordinary works. Oh, yeah. And there's my beautiful shelves of, oh. of all variety. And um, anyway, um, I hope they stay on there. Yeah. <laughs> because if it's a success, uh, it's got a tour eight. Regional galleries. Well, that's right. Yeah, it's got to travel the country, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Oh, good luck with it. I yeah, hope, you know. Thanks. It looks fantastic. I've seen it on Instagram. Um, and also, you entered the win. Yes, that's a that's a majorly historic piece in terms of repping the aunties, um, Auntie Elaine Russell, who was arguably the biggest influence on my style, uh, whom I did meet in those early days of Bamali. Mm-hmm. And if you look at her works. Um, and look at my works today, it's pretty damn obvious that she has influenced the way I execute a landscape. You know, uh, block colours, uh, key line, black outlines around yeah. everything yeah. and um, the layers of, of uh, landscape. But um, what happened was that she passed in 2017 and I known her son for a long time is a beautiful man and a wonderful muso in the community here I asked him were there any paintings of hers remaining because I really love one in my collection yeah and um, he got back to me and said look I've got this idea mum had started this canvas before she had a stroke mm. and um, we'd be honored if you'd finish it so I when I collected this canvas and it was, you know, it was probably two thirds of the way there really. And I bought it back here and, and completed it. And um, I simply added more foliage in the way that I would add my foliage. I have this consistency um, where I put these kind of rondels of bush in the landscapes mm-hmm. and they're, they're just like green balls. Yeah. And people often ask, what are they? Well, they they were, uh, primarily influenced by the um, paddy melons in the desert. So you get this beautiful stark contrast between the red dust and these bright green balls mm. just sitting there. So um, they influenced the way I paint my little rondel bushes in mm. my landscapes just mm. to give a, a layered gradation in the landscape. So what I did was I added a lot of those into the landscape. Uh, of Auntie Elaine's painting, which was quite vacant in the foreground. And um, they just perfectly um, complement the way she paints the trees, which are just round um, bits of gum leaves, you know. So I've I've entered it as a collaboration Mm. and I've stylized a signature uh, ER and BD. What a great idea. Yeah. Oh, I hope that gets in. Uh, Yeah. I see it on the walls. It's a very um, historic piece. I always felt that I'm just creating my own landscape and it's all based off one photograph that I took a long time ago that I saw was that this is my landscape. This is, and that was my visit to Papanya. Oh. And um, this, is, this is how I want to portray. Um, but it's been a yeah. tremendous... What, what was the photo of? Um, of that drive to, to Papanya, 
yeah. west of Alice Springs. And um, it was just gobsmacking, astounding landscape, you know, the flat red uh, approaching sunset. So the, you know, that, that uh, <clears throat> the hues of blue in the sky, the red road, the green paddy melons mm. and the pink McDonald ranges. Mm. I was in love. Yeah, and so that's influenced you. That yeah. site has influenced yeah. you since then. And that's then. why most of my landscapes uh, pay respect to that. I find it really interesting looking at your work because it's clear that there is a lot of different techniques that you use getting the paint onto the surface. Can you tell me a bit about, you know, all, about different techniques you've, you've sort of discovered or come across? From the onset... <clears throat> of the early days when I was bequeathed a bunch of unwanted house paints <laughs> to paint those first boards, yeah. I found that the use of the average house paint, acrylic that is, yeah. and I chose to embrace acrylics because of um, what I feel is a greater environmental use yeah. in that for the most part, when I was living in a share house in Haberfield and enjoying a quarter acre block, you wash your brushes in water and you just chuck the water out on the grass yeah. and uh, uh, the paint in the water, as opposed to the landfill of oils yeah. and, uh, and also the fumes of oils. Yeah. So the use of house paints then became quite generic for me because also the early days were uh, orchestrated by um, the painting of murals. Yeah, you've painted a lot of murals. Yeah, yeah, so what I used on the mural wall could also be used on my canvases. Yeah, right. So it went a long way, a four-litre four can. What I found was the most um, pertinent thing was that the, the uh, synthetic polymer has plastic in it. So it's, it's, its plasticity enables you to get various effects. And you can build that, the volume up by using various mediums, mm. but by and large, just dolloping on your average paint, acrylic house paint onto canvas, it will just start cracking in the, when you put it in the sun. Oh, and right. so a, very, a big part of my process has always been trying to make my big suns or my big moons, which is grandfather and grandmother spirits, which are omnipresent in my paintings, uh, particularly the suns, I try to make them look like a hot thing. And so by dolloping on that paint, and then they crack in the sun, there you go, there's a sun. Yes, it's so, so effective. Yeah. And do you mean, so you mean you haven't put a cracking medium or anything in there? Ah. <laughs> the greatest example thus far is in fact the Auntie Esme portrait this year. Okay. Where the, the bands in the background, of which I should add, there are always seven bands in my modern era of paintings, which is Seven Sisters Dreaming in the Sky. And so uh, even in the portraits, there are still the seven bands behind the head. Oh, I didn't realise it was always seven. Yeah. Oh, that's and interesting. And so as per Uncle Roy last year, it was a very important process of using a cracking medium mm. to get the ultimate top coat to uh, just go burko and, and crack. And that's what I mean yeah. by putting it under a slow-moving fan overnight, horizontal, because oh. somehow that exacerbates the process. And, and I suppose you're not really going to know what turns out the next day. That's the exciting part. Yeah. Because um, you leave it overnight as you dolloped it on, as you can see in my Instagram self-promotions of <laughs> this year's Archibald portrait. Yeah. And there's quite a lot of paint going on there. And then you come back in the morning and voila. And it's yeah. just like, wow, what a surprise. Better than opening a Christmas present. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Mm. Must be really exciting. Yeah. And you were saying you use toothbrushes? Yeah, to get my... Um, my little tonal effects, oh, okay. uh, the fine tonal effects, but also um, in all of the landscapes where there are the, the um, vapour trails in the sky, mm. um, that's all done by toothbrush. And now that's something that I retained from the man who inspired me to start painting, which was Kevin Butler. Beautiful Aboriginal man from Wollongong. Yeah. And uh, my early days at the museum when he was employed to create the stolen generation maze in the mm. exhibition. Mm. And I watched his exquisite controlled use of the toothbrush to create, um, uh, you know, Milky Ways and 
Oh, so you're flicking the paint yeah. off the toothbrush, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, bristles. It's not rocket science, but yeah, it's a but, hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, it's um, oh, that's interesting. And also, I saw you once in one video using the um, a coffee cup lid that had been dipped in paint to give sort of marks as well. So you you, you just use anything that you can. Yeah, a lot of rondels. I've got a, a toolbox full of round things yeah. because, as you'll notice in the portraits, um, there's a, a lot of layers of of dabbing the rondel thing, which is basically meant to be, um, uh, I'm trying to create the most abstract version of a dot. And so the, the uh, psychology behind Uncle Max in 2015, mm. which is, uh, is always going to be a hard act to follow because of the, the, uh, the texture of that painting and the layers. Mm. And you've got all of these dabbed uh, rondel little uh, shapes because I knew that if I painted a bona fide black face by using that technique, what it does to the psychology of the layperson is it immediately identifies as an Aboriginal painting. Yeah, that's and because true, that's isn't what it? we've been conditioned. Because of the dots, that's yeah. right. Well, that was a very powerful painting. It's mm. been reproduced many times. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure most people, when they see it, they'll recognise it. Thank you so much for having me in your studio. It's always a privilege to see the space that artists work in. And good luck with the Archibald and Win this year. Thank you very much. All our fingers crossed and we're hoping to have another party with Auntie Esme. And certainly um, uh, I'm sure Auntie Elaine will be by my side also in the artist luncheon at the launch of the Win. Yeah, definitely. What an engaging artist. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Black Douglas. You can see his work hanging in the Art Gallery of New South Wales from 11 May 2019, and I'll be getting a short video clip online soon onto the website, social media and YouTube. Thanks for all your reviews and ratings on iTunes, which is the best way you can support the podcast. I think you can even rate and review through most podcast apps if you scroll down after the list of episodes. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. Painting a portrait for me is, um, yeah, it just really absorbs me and I put my utmost into it. Mm. And uh, it's actually exhausting. <laughs>